Hey everyone, in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at voting rights. Are restrictive voting measures a solution to a problem that doesn't exist? Are your voting rights actually in jeopardy? Find out on this episode of the New Deal Podcast. Welcome to the New Deal Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Nutini. For more from the New Deal, head on over to thenewdeal.com for podcast episodes, blog posts, and YouTube videos. Please follow on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, or head on over to medium.com for some articles that I've written. And if you're listening to the podcast or watching on YouTube, please rate, review, let me know how I'm doing. I would really appreciate it. Today's main topic is going to be on voting rights, top to bottom history, to the politics of it, everything that's going on, why it's important, who the players are. I really want to get in-depth on it and give everyone a good perspective on the voting rights situation, including uh, President Biden's speech yesterday. But before we get into that, I just want to get through some quick stories. First, if you head over to Facebook, uh, you might notice the New Deal has a Facebook page in which I like to post things, podcast articles, and things like that. However, this week I have just created the New Deal community group. Uh, If you join the community group, you can post articles too. You can post news. You can start conversations, trying to build a community, build the the discussion. So please head on over to the New Deal community group on Facebook. Uh, Ask to join. I'll approve you. And uh, we'll have some good conversations over there. Uh, Off the top, first thing I want to talk about is your Windows computer. You're going to want to update your Windows machine because there's a new security flaw called Print Nightmare, and it affects your Windows print spooler service. Basically, if you can print from your computer, you're at risk. A research group, a cybersecurity company called Sangfor, accidentally published a how-to guide, how, you know, how to exploit the print spooler. They posted it on Twitter. I think they were saying that they were up for an award and they posted a link and it was actually like the exploit guide for this uh, hack. So... Uh, Microsoft has released a patch for it for Windows 10, and even though Windows 7 is unsupported, they've also released a patch for that. Uh, so Windows 7, Windows 10, go download that. Really important because the you know instructions on how to hack this are on the internet. Fun. Next piece of news, the child tax credit payments are going to be starting up. So if you have children, you could get up to $300 per child from now uh through the next year, I believe, and, and if they renew it, it could go further. So that's fun for people with kids. A COVID update. The Delta variant is spreading around the world and including here in the U.S. It is primarily affecting in this country unvaccinated people. Some vaccinated people also get it. Not as bad, not as deadly. However, there are huge pockets of unvaccinated people, especially in the Southeast, that are being affected by this. Please, if you aren't vaccinated, please get vaccinated so this thing doesn't mutate so that we all need to like go into lockdown again. I, I beg you, please. Spectators won't be allowed at the Olympics in Tokyo because they're at their highest case count since May. So we're still in the middle of an epidemic pandemic here, uh, whatever you want to call it. So be careful, be vigilant, please get vaccinated. 
Finally, Richard Branson kind of went to space, which is kind of cool. It's not as cool as actually going to space, but at least he's trying, right? So he went to, you know, basically subspace, like it's like not quite space, but as high as you can get subspace. Haha. Um, if you go to omaze.com, O-M-A-Z-E, you can actually enter to win two seats on an upcoming flight to almost outer space. So that's, that's kind of cool. I, I would like to go to space. I like Star Trek and stuff. Let me, I'd like to see the world from way, way up, even though I'm scared of heights. But there's no gravity up there anyway. So, you know, for at least a few minutes, you'll be safe when there's no gravity and you're floating around. I mean, there's plenty of other ways. Anyway, I won't get into that. So those are the top stories. Get your computer updated, get vaccinated. And if you want to go to space, there's a way to do it. Boom. Our main topic today is voting rights. Take a listen. But even if we pass this bill, the battle will not be over. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement which reaches into every section and state of America. It is the effort of American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessings of American life. Their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. That speech was given by President Johnson in 1965 after the Selma March in Alabama. The speech is relevant today. And here's the thing. When a speech from 66 years ago is also glaringly evident in current times, it's relevant in current times, you know we're in trouble. This was in reference to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was then, and still, a landmark piece of legislation that finally gave Black Americans a stronger voice in U.S. politics, but not their full voice. However, it went a long way. Why am I bringing up the Voting Rights Act of 1965? It's 66 years old. We must have done something since then, right? I mean, we must have made some progress. Actually, no. We haven't. We haven't had really any voting rights laws passed since then. We've renewed the Voting Rights Act multiple times, and I'll get to that in just a few minutes. But the reason I bring up the Voting Rights Act is because over the last eight or nine years, the Voting Rights Act has actually been eaten away at by a series of lawsuits that have gone to the Supreme Court. So I'm going to talk about those for a second here, just to give some perspective. In 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court had a case, Shelby v. Holder. And in that case, the Supreme Court voted essentially to gut what was called Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Now, like I said, that Voting Rights Act was a landmark piece of legislation. It prevented discrimination at the polls. Up to that point, even though black men were able to vote, there were things like literacy tests at the polls or poll taxes that you had to pay in order to vote. Or there was simply voter intimidation. They would just intimidate black people so that they wouldn't show up to the polls or they would, you know, leave the polling areas. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 changed that. And it did it in a few big ways. 
But there's two key provisions I want us to keep in mind here. The first is Section 5. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was for something called preclearance. And what preclearance is, is that certain states that had been guilty of passing discriminatory voting practices in the past would be required to get federal approval before they changed any of their voting laws. So let's say Alabama. They say, oh, you know, we want really strict voter IDs. Every voter needs to have seven voting IDs in order to vote. We want to do this. They would have to go to the federal government, the government would say, that seems excessive. We're not going to do that. That's discriminatory or over the top. And they wouldn't be able to pass it. That's what Section 5 did. The other section is Section 2. And Section 2 allows for lawsuits to be filed against states who implement discriminatory voting practices. So basically, Section 5 was to prevent laws from going into effect before they ever did. And Section 2 was to empower voters to be able to file lawsuits should a law be discriminatory. They have kind of recourse to challenge that law. Okay? The 2013 decision in Shelby v. Holder removed Section 5. That's the one that allowed the federal government to review the, the voting laws. What's important to note about Section 5 is that it placed the burden on the states to prove that laws were not discriminatory. So if you wanted to pass a law in your state and you were on the list of states that needed to, you know, pass Section 5, you would have to prove that your laws were not discriminatory. The burden of proof was on the states. By removing Section 5, what this did was made it so that voters essentially would have to prove after the fact, after the laws went into effect, that a law was discriminatory, and their way to do that was through Section 2. So because Section 5 is removed, states no longer needed preclearance to pass laws, so essentially Section 5 is done, can't be used anymore, it's ineffective, so the only recourse voters have left is Section 2. I think it's important to note, for 48 years, Section 5 worked without any issue, and suddenly it was gone. The entire Voting Rights Act had been reapproved by Congress five separate times, the latest being in 2006, every time with large bipartisan support through both Republican and Democrat-controlled administrations. After the outcome, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. Because the argument was that, oh, well, racism isn't really an issue anymore in voting laws, so let's get rid of the protection of Section 5 because it's really not necessary anymore. Within hours of this decision, states began passing more restrictive voting laws. One law from North Carolina was struck down in federal court using Section 2 because it was designed to target African Americans, quote, with almost surgical precision. A law like that in North Carolina would never have even been passed into law if Section 5 had been upheld. So for the argument that Section 5 could be removed because, oh, you know, there's no more racism in voting laws, there were immediately racist voting laws passed that were then struck down. And there were far more consequences as a result of this one Supreme Court decision. Now, most of the statistics I'm about to go over are based on the 2016 election and the years between 2013 and 2016 because we don't yet have comprehensive data from the 2020 election. But nonetheless, the numbers are staggering. Here we go. 
1,688 polling locations were closed between 2013 and 2016. 214 of those polling locations were in Georgia alone. Other restrictive voting laws were put into effect in this time. Voter ID laws, the changing of polling locations, and poll times. In 2016, 17 states that did not have voter ID laws in the 2012 election had implemented voter ID laws for the 2016 election. 17 states. Now, before I move on, I just want to point one thing out. Discriminatory voting laws do not need to say, you know, black people are not allowed to vote on Tuesdays. What usually happens is these laws are found to be discriminatory in effect. They discriminate in their effect. So you might have a law that is looks perfectly normal, looks perfectly reasonable. However, if a law that seemingly looks normal actually negatively affects a large group of people more than the rest of the voters, then that law discriminates in effect. This happens with voter ID laws, and I'll get into it a little bit later, but if you pass a voter ID law and 50% of minorities in a state don't have a voter ID, that law is discriminating in effect because it will affect a large group of people. It is, in effect, targeting a large group of people. But we'll, we'll do more on this later. I don't want to get too wrapped up in that now. Now, one thing I do want to point out is that, remember, I said that Georgia closed 214 polling locations you know, in, in just that state alone between 2013 and 2016. Remember earlier this year, Georgia passed a law making it illegal to hand out food or water in polling lines. And I want to illustrate something here. It is not coincidence that Georgia had also closed so many polling stations. Why would you close polling stations? There's a lot of reasons you might close polling locations. Maybe they don't get a lot of voters. Maybe you can't staff it. Maybe you don't have the funding for so many polling locations across the state. However, another reason you might close a polling location is because if you reduce the amount of polling locations in an area, that means that voters are going to be funneled into the remaining open ones, which means that there's going to be longer lines in those locations, right? If you pair the closing of polling locations with stricter voting hours and limits on absentee voting, suddenly those lines are even longer. Oh, my polling location is closed. I got to go to this other place, but also I only have six hours to go to this polling place. And also I can't cast an absentee ballot because it's way harder to do now. So I have to go vote in person. Me and every other voter in the area. Pair that with a lack of food and water for hours and hours and hours in a long line at a polling place. And now you have a deterrent from keeping people in lines at the polls. They might get tired. They might go home. They might need to, I don't know, even use the bathroom if the lines are long enough, you know? Closing polling places in a strategic way, for instance, so that only urban areas with large black or minority populations, that's voter discrimination. You are now targeting people simply by closing polling locations. And in conjunction with other laws, you can see how this could, I mean, if you close, if you've got 15 polling locations in like the eastern part of a city and you close seven of them, you are doubling or more the lines at each of the remaining polling places. Then no food, no water. Then absentee ballots are taken away. You can see the compounding effect. It's easy to see. 
I'm taking some time on this, but I think it's important to demonstrate how these restrictive voting laws work. This is how they are intended to work. They are supposed to seem perfectly reasonable, but in conjunction with other restrictive voting laws, they can literally target groups of people in specific locations and create deterrence to voting. That's why there's such a push for these voting regulations. And remember, most of these voting regulations did not come into effect until after that 2013 Supreme Court ruling in which Section 5 was struck down. So this brings us straight into 2021. A few weeks ago, there was another major case regarding the Voting Rights Act brought to the Supreme Court. The state of Arizona was trying to pass some restrictive voting measures. The first was they wanted to throw out all ballots cast out of precinct. So what this means is if you go to a precinct and you cast your ballot, but it's not the place you were supposed to vote, it's not the building you're supposed to vote in, they will throw out your entire ballot. Even if you were eligible to vote, and even if statewide races or federal races were on the same ballot, those are races that your precinct doesn't affect at all. It doesn't matter where you vote in a state if you're voting for president or governor, but they want to throw out the ballot regardless, just because you voted in the wrong location. Second, they wanted to limit the people who could drop off absentee ballots at drop boxes. They wanted to limit that to family caregivers and postal workers only. Now, both of these have drastic consequences, especially on the Native American communities in Arizona. They're constantly battling changing and shifting polling locations. So every year or every election, their polling location changes. It's not the same. It's not consistent. So they don't have a clear idea of where they need to go. And so it can be confusing. So they might end up in the wrong precinct. There's a very real chance that that happens. And further, they may not have the same access to the postal service the same way someone in a city or rural area, sorry, a uh, kind of suburban area might. They're out on you know, reservations and they don't have the same access, so they might rely more heavily on dropping their ballots at drop boxes. But if you limit it to just family, that means your, your friend can't take it down or your uncle can't take it down, you know. And, and so these restrictions really affect the Native American communities in Arizona in a way that they do not affect other communities in Arizona. Remember, this discriminates in effect, one could argue. However, the court upheld both provisions. And what this did was this essentially gutted Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act because it allowed the practices that clearly disadvantaged groups of eligible voters and now set a precedent that similar laws like this will now be upheld in the future. So by allowing these laws to be upheld, the court's basically saying, even if you use Section 2 to bring a lawsuit against the state, we're basically just going to allow it anyway. So they have nullified Section 5, and as of this year, it seems that they have nullified Section 2. For all intents and purposes, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is dead. An act that has been in place for 66 years, renewed on a bipartisan basis for decades, is dead at the hands of the Supreme Court. Justice Elena Kagan wrote in dissent on this case, and her dissent was extremely strongly worded, which is usually not the norm for a Supreme Court dissent. It happens, but she was extremely pointed. And so I just want to go over some of the things she said here, because first, she was 
unsparing in her criticism of the Shelby County versus Holder case, uh, the 2013 case. She said, maybe some think that vote suppression is a relic of history, and so the need for a potent Section 2 has come and gone. This was a thinly veiled remark to Chief Justice John Roberts, who in the Shelby County opinion wrote that things have changed in the South. And remember, immediately after that opinion, restrictive voting laws were passed within hours. She said, efforts to suppress the minority vote continue, but no one would know this from reading the majority opinion. In effect, she's saying that it seems like the justices who ruled to essentially strike down Section 2, in effect, are saying that racism isn't a problem in voting laws anymore, so why do we even need this? Her closing paragraph was what got me. I think I posted this over on the Facebook page the day it came out because I read this and I was like, yes, you know? She says, this court has no right to remake Section 2. Maybe some think that vote suppression is a relic of history and so the need for a potent Section 2 has come and gone, but Congress gets to make that call. Because it has not done so, Congress, this court's duty is to apply the law as it is written. The law that confronted one of this country's most enduring wrongs, pledged to give every American of every race an equal chance to participate in our democracy, and now stands as the crucial tool to achieve that goal. That law, of all laws, deserves the sweep and power Congress gave it. That law, of all laws, should not be diminished by this court. What, is, what she's saying is that it is not for the justices to decide whether or not Racism is still a problem in voting laws. It is simply their job to apply the law if it matters. And they have, it seems like she's implying, abdicated their duty in doing as such, and therefore have weakened a law that should have the power of Congress behind it. And again, it was recertified for decades on a bipartisan basis. And in just a few years, in just eight years, we went from having a, an extremely strong Voting Rights Act to nearly nothing. And this is exactly what happened with Citizens United. Within the last like decade, we've allowed dark money into politics. We've gotten rid of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. We have essentially given away all the power that the people had to protect ourselves and make our voices heard in just like a decade. Okay? That is the first front of a two-front war that is being waged on voting rights in our election process. The second front is the elections themselves and the integrity of those elections, or I should say the perceived integrity of those elections. After the 2016 election, which Donald Trump won, Donald Trump claimed that there was mass voter fraud by illegal aliens and non-citizens. However, he had no evidence to support this claim. None. To this day, there is no evidence to support that claim. Studies were done. There, there was no evidence of widespread mass voter fraud by illegal aliens or, you know, illegal immigrants in this country. Even though he won that race, he was still sowing deceit about the integrity of the election, which is weird. You'd think that someone who just won an election would want to legitimize their victory and the process in which they won it. But that wasn't the case. That's red flag number one. But then we've got all the fallout of the 2020 election, okay? So before the election, before 2020, in multiple speeches, just prior to the election, Donald Trump, or the madman of Mar-a-Lago, as my dad now affectionately calls him, Trump alleged voter fraud 
was already happening before the election even started, before votes were being cast. He said, oh, there's already voter fraud, which is crazy. And of course, he had no evidence to cite because votes had not been cast. This was as early as September. He claimed multiple ballots were being sent to people. But he assumed, also, that those people must also be Democratic voters, which you have no way of knowing. Even if multiple ballots are being sent out to certain towns or areas or whatever, even if that were actually happening, and again, there's no evidence that it was happening, it could be a Republican. Easily. Very easily. Okay? But no, the assumption is that it must be Democrat. Red flag number two. After the election, which he lost, he filed lawsuits in multiple states, and like over 60 of them, and all of them failed. All of those filed lawsuits failed. Not a single one of them yielded anything. Red flag number three. There have been four recounts in Georgia, all of which reaffirmed the result. And yet, the call from Trump and many Republicans is that there was foul play in Georgia and that that is not the accurate count in Georgia. Remember, Trump called the Secretary of State in Georgia and, you know, asked him to find some votes. Again, this has been recertified four times now that the election results in Georgia are good. Red flag number three. In Arizona right now, there's a private company named Cyber Ninjas, and they are auditing the Arizona elections. They've been given access to the ballots and to the machines, to everything, which is crazy because Cyber Ninjas has never conducted an election audit before, ever. In fact, it doesn't seem like they've done anything before. They are a company that has literally done nothing to this point. The only thing that Cyber Ninjas has done is audit this Arizona election, which is weird. You'd think you would bring in a group of people who had a lot of experience in, in auditing, but no, that's not the case. You dread flag in Arizona. However, on another note, there was a Republican-led commission in Michigan to check into voting fraud in that state, and they found that there was no evidence of voter fraud in the 2020 election there. This is a Republican-led committee. They released a report. I believe I posted this. These Republicans that, that led that committee they have been ridiculed by other members of the party. They've been ridiculed for saying that there was no voter fraud. They've been ridiculed for telling the truth. However, also, despite finding no evidence of fraud, they still suggested stricter voting laws should be implemented simply because the fear being sown by the conspiracy theorists was making people question the election integrity. To just check that logic, of which there is none, they're saying, hey, there is no voter fraud. That's all a conspiracy. We don't need to worry about it. It's, it's it literally non-existent. It's crazy. But that crazy is kind of making people uncomfortable, even though there's nothing to it. So rather than just saying there's nothing to it and saying, hey, our process is good, we should just like make stricter voter laws because people are scared, which is illogical. It's stupid. It's dumb. It's insane. Another red flag. Even though they came to the right conclusion, even though they found no fraud, it's still insane that they would be pushing this narrative. There's a narrative being pushed that there is election fraud happening that is not happening nationwide by Republicans, even when Republicans themselves find no evidence of voter fraud. What is this? In Oklahoma, a state which Trump won by over 30 points. And by the way, he carried every single county in Oklahoma. If you look at a map of Oklahoma, it is all red. There is no blue in Oklahoma at all. In Oklahoma, 
Republicans in that state are saying something isn't adding up about their election results. Wh what? Your guy won by 30 points. 30 points. Huge margin of victory. He carried every county. What the hell could you think is wrong with your voting in, in Oklahoma as a Republican? It's, these are huge red flags. Huge. Like, like it's, it's crazy. But, but, but the assumed logic here is that in a state like Oklahoma, you have heavy Republican control, which means that if they wanted to conduct an audit like it's being done in Arizona, they would give access to the ballots. They would give access to the voting machines. They could put on the show in these Republican-run states, even if it's a state where Trump run won by 30, 40 points. Because if they come out and say, oh yeah, we found 100 votes, they're, they're going to make a big deal out of it, and they're going to use it to push this narrative that voting fraud is a widespread problem when it is not. And the voting laws keep coming. This, this kind of wacky conspiracy has gotten people worked up. So a lot of these legislatures are passing more restrictive voting laws. As of June 30th of this year, 28 laws have been passed in 17 states restricting access to voting since the November election. It, they make regist registering for voting more difficult. They change poll hours. They close polls. They reduce the early voting window. They make it harder to request a mail or absentee ballot, and they make it harder to return a mail or absentee ballot, among other things, okay? In a final stand, Texas Democrats this week uh, in that state literally left the state. They fled the state and flew to Washington, D.C. in order to delay the passage of some more of these restrictive voting laws. Uh, by leaving the state, they didn't allow the legislator to form a quorum, which they need to take a vote on the law. So they're essentially delaying what's probably the inevitable. They went to D.C. and they advocated for the passage of the For the People Act, which is the big Democrat-backed voting rights bill that I'm going to get to a little later in the episode. Um, the governor, Greg Abbott, has actually threatened these representatives who left with jail time or threatened to seal them in to the, uh, you know, their, their legislative building there until they get this passed when they get back. So there's clearly anger on that part too. Um, but this is, this is where we are because we're passing restrictive voting laws and we don't really know why we're passing restrictive voting laws and it just doesn't make sense. Just to go over what some of these Texas laws are, by the way, earlier this year in May, the same kind of thing happened. At the end of the legislative term, Democrats basically blocked a similar bill uh, by walking out. And so here we are again. That bill wanted to ban drive-through and overnight early voting. It also completely eliminated um, some of the Sunday hours, the Sunday voting hours, which is funny because a key Republican blamed that provision, the Sunday voting hours, on a typo, he said, oh, you know, actually, he said, actually, that's one of the things I look forward to fixing the most in the bill. That was not intended to be reduced. I think there was a, you know, call it a mistake if you want, which should have been an 11 for the time, was actually printed up as a 1. So he was saying that they didn't intend to restrict it. However, in the new bill, they do want to restrict the, the hours of, of Sundays by one hour. So the original bill restricted these hours drastically. Then the state GOP said, oh, wait, 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 we never meant to do that. That was just a typo. But then 
in the new bill, they're like, actually, you know what? We do want to restrict it by one hour, which is not the same as not doing it at all, right? So that's what's going on in Texas. Um, the new bill would also empower partisan poll watchers to be on site and cause problems and, you know, open the door for voter intimidation. So this happened before. And even though the new bill is, you know, slightly, slightly better, it allows the, the Sunday voting. And the reason Sunday voting is important because a lot of places around the country do something called souls to the polls, which is big in the black American community where after church you go vote. And so by restricting Sunday hours, this is where we discriminate in effect, right? It would prevent a lot of people from voting in the way that they normally would. So why are we passing new voting laws? Why, why are we passing a bill that limits voting hours on Sunday by one hour? Why are we going to ban drive through and overnight early voting? Is there any evidence that drive through and early, overnight early voting uh, produced mass fraudulent votes? No. No, there's not. What evidence is there that voting laws are so bad that they need to be strengthened? Well, there's none. There's no evidence. There is nothing to suggest that we need stricter voting laws whatsoever. At all. It doesn't make any sense. Especially when we're getting nitty-gritty and like, oh yeah, we're going to cut an hour here and we're not going to allow food over there. And uh, What? That doesn't stop fraud. Nothing about that stops fraud. Let's go over some stats. Let's go over some voter fraud stats, all right? In South Carolina in 2010, there were 207 possible instances of a dead person voting in that state. Let's go through the 207. 106 of those were clerical errors made by the poll managers. So throw out 106. We're down to 101. We've got 101 left. 56 of those were something called bad matching, meaning that the voter was not actually dead. Hey, we thought this guy was dead. Not dead. Take another 56 off. 32 of those were caused by stray marks on paperwork that incorrectly indicated that a person had voted when they didn't. Three people voted early, but then they died prior to election day. And then 10 cases that had insufficient evidence to make any determination. So, of 207 cases of possible voter fraud, zero, zero, were proven to be actual cases of voter fraud. Zero. Keep this in mind. Keep in mind that this happened. 207 possible cases, zero were actually fraud. Between the years 2000 and 2014 nationwide, out of over 1 billion votes cast, there have only been 31 instances of voter impersonation. In Oregon, which sends out mail ballots to all eligible voters, between the years 2000 and 2020, and over 100 million ballots cast, there were only 12 instances of voter fraud found. 12 instances out of 100 million ballots over 20 years. 12. In five states that mail ballots to all of their voters, they just send them out. There were 372 total possible instances of double voting or deceased voting in the 2016 and 2018 general elections. But remember, as we saw in South Carolina, most of these are likely not actual instances of fraud. They're probably clerical errors. They're probably mistakes. There may be people that voted early and then died. However, even if we say, you know what, all 372 of those are actual proven cases of fraud, that would mean that just 0.0025% of all mail-in votes out of 14.6 million ballots were fraudulent. 
That's assuming that every single one of those instances was in fact a case of proven fraud. Think about that. In Wisconsin, in 2020, there were 27 potential cases of fraud out of the 3.3 million votes cast there. Remember, Joe Biden won Wisconsin by 26,000 votes. We're talking about 27, again, potential cases of voter fraud. Let's go through those. 16 of those instances used addresses at a UPS store, like a postal box, instead of their residential address. Four of those instances voted both absentee and in person, which during the pandemic, you can see how that might get weird. You get sent a ballot, you vote, and then you're like, oh crap, did I, did I send it in too late? Is my vote going to count? Let me go vote in person. Let me file a provisional ballot. There's a lot of ways in which you might want to actually do that. One instance was a convicted felon who was not eligible to vote. One ballot was returned by the son of the person who requested it. Three of these votes uh, had people that voted in two places. One instance was someone who returned two absentee ballots, and one person was adjudicated incompetent. So of those 27 potential cases, you might have one, maybe, case of intentional voter fraud. And even then, the, the, the study did not say it was intentional. This is just what they found. What about actual fraud? Where, where's the actual fraud? The first federal election ever to be overturned in history was in 2018 in North Carolina after a Republican ballot harvesting scheme was uncovered. The scheme took place in both the 2016 general election and the 2018 primary election. They would collect mail-in ballots, they would fill them in, forge the signatures, and submit them. So the only case that we have on file of a federal election being overturned due to a voter fraud scheme is a Republican scheme in 2018, and honestly, pretty, pretty small scale at that. You know, so the election was overturned, it didn't count, rightfully so, but even then, pretty small scale at that. Then you've got things like a group called Donors Trust, which is a right-wing nonprofit organization, and they're operated as a dark money group by funneling millions of dollars in donations to pro-Trump groups in order to cause concern and skepticism about the integrity of elections, and even help to fund court expenses and recount costs. Someone's paying the private company in Arizona to do that audit. Arizona's not paying for it. That's, that's a private thing. So where's the money coming from? Well, it's coming from rich Republicans who are trying to sow, you know, doubt about the integrity of our elections. So we've got conspiracy that is leading to this call for stricter voting measures for a problem that doesn't exist because voter fraud is so infrequent so infrequent that it's it's nearly negligible. And yeah, we want to shave an hour here, shave an hour there, make registration harder, not make it easier for eligible voters to vote. It's crazy. It's backwards. It doesn't make any sense. So for the next piece here, I do want to get into how some of these restrictive laws work and why they're why they're harmful. Okay. And I want us to start with the voter ID laws because these are the most popular. Uh, they get the most press. And Republicans call for them the most. So here's some voter ID law stats that I want to go over. A lot of people say, oh, well, what's wrong with requiring an ID? Uh, you know, you should be able to prove who you are if you want to vote. Remember, if a, if a law discriminates in effect, it, it, it's a discriminatory law. Black Americans and Latinx Americans are, plain and simple, less likely to have a photo ID. They're less likely. We'll get into the reasons in a minute. 
but I'm going to run through some numbers here. 9% of Black or Latinx voters were told that they had the wrong kind of ID on election day compared to 3% of white voters. 10% of Black voters and 11% of Hispanic voters were incorrectly told that they were not listed on voter rolls compared to 5% white people. They went to the right place and they were told, oh, you're in the wrong place. Double the amount of times for each of those demographics than, than white voters. 15% of black voters and 14% of Hispanic voters had trouble finding their polling location due to constant changing or shifting of polling locations compared to 5% of white voters. Black and Hispanic voters are also twice as likely as white voters to not be able to get time off from work to go vote. In Wisconsin, uh, 2016 election, a study found that eligible Democrats who didn't vote due to the new voter ID requirement put in place for that year for the first time, the number of voters who didn't vote due to that ID requirement exceeded Trump's margin of victory in the state. It affected nearly 10% of all eligible voters in Wisconsin. A Republican actually went on the record as saying that that passage of the voter ID law is the only reason that they were able to win a Senate seat and the presidency in Wisconsin. By essentially making sure that 10% of Americans who had the right to vote and were eligible to vote did not have the means to vote. But that's not voter suppression. That's voter suppression. Okay, let's call it what it is. Only 27% of white voters say eligible voters being denied at the polls is a major problem. Only 27% of white voters say eligible voters being denied at the polls is a major problem, what we just talked about. However, 60% or more black and Hispanic voters say that this is a major problem. And I talked about, in my episode about uh, critical race theory, I talked about part of the theory is believing black stories, believing what they're saying. If 60 plus percent of black Americans and Hispanic Americans are saying it's a major problem, that eligible voters are being denied at the polls, it's because it's happening. It's not something that's being blown out of proportion. It's something that's happening, okay? Listen to these stories. So that 2016 voter ID requirement, remember, 17 states required voter ID that did not in 2012, including the state of Wisconsin, which I just went over. A federal court case in Texas found that 608,470 eligible voters did not have the form of ID necessary to obtain a photo ID. Studies found that requiring an ID greatly increased the gaps between white and black Hispanic voter turnout. So in states with no ID requirement, the gap between white and Latino turnout was 5.3%. So, you know, if 100% of white voters showed up and, uh, you know, I... If 100% of white voters showed up and 94.7% uh, of Latino voters showed up, that's a 5.3% gap. However, that number jumped to 11.9% when a voter ID was required. In states with no requirement, the gap between white and black turnout was 4.8%, but that number jumped to 8.5% when an ID was required. And... It was found that voter ID laws seem to have little to no effect on white voter turnout, but they do suppress the Latino voter turnout by about 7%, and they suppress black voter turnout by about 3%. They're harmful. Well, why? Because it's actually hard for a lot of Americans to get an ID. And this is something that I think a lot of uh, middle-class people, um, maybe especially middle-class white people, people who live in the suburbs or in rural areas, just don't 
understand because they're not based with these realities. So I just want to go through it. I hear it all the time. Oh, they should just get an ID. Okay. The most common form of a photo ID is a state driver's license. Many black or Hispanic voters don't have a driver's license. Well, how can that be? Right? A 2005 study found that 80% of white voters have a driver's license compared to just 50% of minority voters. 50%. Many black or Hispanic voters live in urban areas. They live in cities. Or they don't have the financial means to have a car. Uh, or they're, you know, they're poor. So they may not have a car because they take public transportation. Sometimes it's just not efficient or cost-effective to have a car in the city. So you don't need a license because you're on public transportation. A lot of Black and Hispanic Americans are able to rely on student IDs for most of their needs. But student IDs are not widely accepted at polling locations as an official form of photo ID. Black and Hispanic voters are also more likely to have had their license revoked or suspended. And here's the crazy thing. Over half of those suspensions and revocations have nothing to do with their actual violation. Over half of those suspensions and revocations are there because those people were not able to pay a fine in relation to the violation. So because they could not afford a fine in many cases, now they can't get an ID, so now they can't vote. When we're talking about systemic racism and institutional racism, again, this is how it works. It is the compounding of situations like this. Oh, you get pulled over for a speeding ticket. You can't pay the fine. Because you can't pay the fine, you get your license suspended or revoked. Because your license is suspended or revoked, now you can't vote. Now you don't have a voice in the system that has put you in the position you're in to begin with. Okay? Small example. Just want to point it out. Minorities are more likely to move from state to state, just as a matter of fact. And minorities are also more likely to be carded at the polls than white people. Now, in order to receive a photo ID in most places, you have to show additional identification, like a social security card or a certified birth certificate, something like that. And on top of that, all these items have to have matching information. So your legal name has to match. The spelling of your name has to match. And there are several problems here. First, records of birth for middle-aged people born in the 50s or before, um, and some elderly Americans... Those records are often not included in a lot of online databases, and they're hard to track down if they can be tracked down at all. Then we have clerical issues such as the misspelled names. If your name is misspelled on one of the pieces of you know, documentation that you need to provide proof of identity, that's grounds to deny you a photo ID. So then you need to either go get a legal name change so that your name matches the document, or you need to get the documents recreated, which usually carries a fee, and now there's a huge process in getting your ID. In cases like this, a legal name change might require several hundred dollars in fees. Not cheap. Not a cheap thing to do. And at the time, actually, Attorney General Eric Holder said that calling for voter ID laws is a new poll tax. Because in a lot of these situations, in order to obtain your voter ID, a lot of these people need to go spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars and time lost at work, probably equating to thousands of dollars between money spent and time lost at work, money made at work just to get a photo ID to vote. You can see it, how it compounds. It's, it's, it's complicated, but it's also easy to understand. And in fact, a court case in Washington state found that for many people, trying to obtain a voter ID would require them to travel 
over 250 miles round trip to get the documents they needed in the locations that they were, you know, given in order to get the idea. Travel 250 miles round trip. Okay. Now, and I just touched on this, but, you know, a note on institutional racism. You know, I've demonstrated in this episode multiple examples of systemic racism or institutional racism. All right. Georgia passing those seemingly innocuous, uh, or, you know, seemingly uniform laws at face value that would affect everyone, you know, using compound effects. You close enough polling locations, you can target whoever you want to not show up at the polls or whoever you want to inconvenience. Many of these state laws are passed with the understanding that laws will drastically affect specific groups. These laws are not being passed and then like, oops, this accidentally affected a group of people. These laws are being passed with the intent to affect specific groups of people, okay? There are millions and millions of dollars poured into this stuff. It's intentional. If 80% of white people already have a photo ID compared to 50% of a minority, who's going to suffer the most if you require a voter ID? Minorities. You don't even need to think about it. It's a law that discriminates in effect. Okay? On top of all this, there are safeguards to mail ballots. There's safeguards to absentee ballots. Most mail ballots require some type of identifying information on them to begin with, like uh, certifying your identification identification by signature under law. Some states actually require like the last four of your social or something like that. And almost all mail ballots have a barcode on them, which when scanned, when you return your ballot and that ballot is scanned, no one else can vote with your name. No one else can do it. And these databases are up to date within six seconds of like these things being scanned. So it's nearly impossible to duplicate a absentee or mail-in ballot with these systems in place. Voting fraud is also a felony. You have to be willing to go to jail to maybe cast one extra vote, right? That doesn't seem like a smart trade-off. And as far as illegal immigrants go, if you are found to be voting and you're an illegal immigrant, that's grounds for deportation and a permanent ban on ever being naturalized in the U.S. And if you want to be a citizen in this country, you're probably not going to risk that entire goal to go cast one seemingly, you know, all votes count, but seemingly inconsequential vote. All right? So there are safeguards there. So you can see all the ways that that this is coming together. We have these restrictive voting laws being passed. We have conspiracy theories that are undermining the election system. We have demographics being specifically suppressed by the Republican Party specifically. This is not happening. Democrats are not doing this. Democrats are trying to make it easier for everybody to vote. Everybody. The GOP is doing the opposite. And as I covered, there is no reason to do so because the instances of voter fraud in this country are so minimal that they don't even require action. They just don't. In theory, the Supreme Court justices that, you know, broke down the Voting Rights Act agreed with that assessment because they're essentially saying, well, you know, this isn't really an issue anymore. They're not worried about voter fraud. Why the Republican Party? Why does the Republican Party want to simultaneously gut the Voting Rights Act while conservative justices are saying that, hey, we don't have discrimination in voter laws anymore. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. It's illogical to be Vulcan about it. It's illogical. But we're not stuck. There's legislation on the table. There's a way out. There's, there's a way we can do things. And I want to go over a couple of those paths forward. The first is the John Lewis Voting Act, which I think actually has quite a bit of bipartisan support. And the main thing that this 
voting law would do if passed was restore Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act uh, in, a, in a way that would apply to then all states. It would protect against discriminatory practices and it would require these states to run their laws by the federal government, by Congress, in order for them to pass. That's what the John Lewis Voting Rights Act does. Restore Section 5, the one that was struck down in 2013. The big one is the For the People Act. Before I get into it, President Biden gave a speech yesterday, and I just want to play a few words from him in regard to the importance of voting rights and this Voting Rights Act. We're going to face another test in 2022, a new wave of unprecedented voter suppression, sustained election subversion. We have to prepare now. As I said time and again, no matter what, you can never stop the American people from voting. They will decide. And the power must always be with the people. That's why, just like we did in 2020, we have to prepare for 2022. We'll engage in an all-out effort to educate voters about the changing laws, register them to vote, and then get the vote out. We'll encourage people to run for office themselves at every level. We'll be asking my Republican friends in Congress and states and cities and counties to stand up for God's sake and help prevent this concerted effort to undermine our election and the sacred right to vote. Have you no shame? I will say, as, as a Democrat and someone who leans progressive, it's the type of thing I've wanted to hear for a while. Have you no shame? When there is no... There, there is so little instance of voter fraud in this country that, that we're, but we're, yet you're willing to pass these restrictive voting laws to disenfranchise groups of people when you're willing to literally attack the integrity of our election system when there is no proof that it needs to be challenged. It's, it's, it's anti-democratic as an anti-democracy. And so it's really important, you know, that we hear this kind of thing. And I'm, I'm glad he put the challenge out there. What he's talking about is the passage of the For the People Act. And the For the People Act is a huge, sweeping piece of legislation. Earlier this month, or late last month, the Senate voted not to bring this bill, the For the People Act, to the floor for debate. Mitch McConnell said, What this is really about is an effort for the federal government to take over the way which we conduct elections in this country. He said, It is a solution in search of a problem, which is hilarious, right? Because... Isn't passing restrictive voting laws also a solution in search of a problem? Hey, let's pass these laws even though there isn't a problem. It's the same thing, but this is, you know, the standard hypocrisy that we get from, from Mitch McConnell especially. To be clear, the For the People Act is a federal law, which means that it only applies to federal elections. It only applies to nationwide elections. It cannot tell the states how to run their own elections because it's a federal law. But it only applies to federal elections. Right? Okay. What does the For the People Act do? I like to break down the facts on this podcast because too much stuff gets misconstrued in all, all facets of the media. So I go through, I read, I present it. What's it going to do? Okay, first, voting rights. We're going to modernize voter registration through things like automatic voter registration, allow for same-day online registration, same-day election, that is, and protect against flawed voter roll purges, which means that, hey, if you're on a list, you can't be taken off that list. We're going to make it harder 
for people to be removed so that we have less instances of people showing up and being told, hey, you're on, in the wrong place, even though you're in the right place. It will restore essentially the full power of the Voting Rights Act. It'll restore voting rights to people with prior convictions. It will strengthen mail voting, institute nationwide early voting, prevent unreasonable wait times at the polls, prevent against deceptive practices, require that all voters receive absentee ballot applications and allow voters to request that their application be applicable to all federal, federal elections, making reapplication unnecessary. Will allow voters to vote by mail without a voter ID number or other onerous ID requirements. However, when they register to vote, they need to prove their identity, right? So only for the mail-in ballot would that not be required, but since they're already registered to vote with an address, that's already been done. It's like going through security at the airport. Once you've gone through security, you can get on the airplane, right? It'll prohibit states from placing limits on how many absentee ballots a person can return on behalf of others. Uh, like the, what we saw in Arizona in that restrictive law, and will ensure that voters can drop off ballots in drop boxes at locations and time that actually work for them. That's as far as voting rights go. For campaign finance, they're going to establish a small donor public financing. What this means is that if you're a candidate and you don't have a ton of money and you can't compete with Michael Bloomberg, there will be a fund of public money out there for you to use in order to kind of even the playing field and let people who do not have all the means and not, don't, aren't millionaires to run. It will reform campaign finance rules, and this will change how candidates are able to interact with political action committees, and it will demand disclosure of wealthy donors to those uh, political action committees and on advertisements, and they want to overhaul the Federal Election Commission, um, which first and foremost means getting all the members on it, because right now it, it's not fully staffed, and making sure it's a nonpartisan commission. There will be redistricting reform. It will outlaw gerrymander, outlaw gerrymandering completely. However, it will keep communities of interest together. So if you've got a city surrounded by a farming community, the farming community would be one district and then the city would be another. That's kind of how it works now, except a little bit more balanced without the gerrymandering. And states must use independent commissions to draw those district lines. It will no longer be up to state legislatures. It must be an independent commission. It will... Strengthen election security by funding comprehensive audits and keeping vendors honest to strict regulations. And as far as ethics goes, it will require the disclosure of tax returns for the president and the vice president for all candidates moving forward, regardless of size. It will strengthen the ethics office and enlarge it. It will strengthen the safeguards against conflict of interest being carried out and it will require a code of ethics for the Supreme Court of the United States. I'm going to go over all this, but again, I just want to play one more clip from Biden yesterday that I thought was really strong. We have to work together. Vice President Harris and I will be making it clear that there's real peril in making raw power rather than the idea of liberty, the centerpiece of the common life. Founders understood this. The women of Seneca Falls understood this. The brave, heroic foot soldiers of the Civil Rights Movement understood this. So must we. This isn't about Democrats or Republicans. It's literally about who we are as Americans. It's that basic. It's about the kind of country we want today, the kind of country we want for our children and grandchildren tomorrow. 
And quite frankly, the whole world is watching. Now, I don't think he's being hyperbolic when he says the whole world is watching, because the fact of the matter is, is that our election system has been the envy of the world for a long time, and it is actually under attack. You know, there is an attempt to undermine the election system. And and I, I hope I've been comprehensive in this episode. I hope I've been able to demonstrate, even if you don't completely agree with everything I'm saying, I hope that I've been able to demonstrate voter fraud is infrequent to the point that it does not require, really, any more restrictive voting laws. That some of these restricting voting laws that seem innocuous, like, hey, everyone should have an ID, can actually be extremely detrimental to large groups of people, and it can be extremely challenging for those people to obtain the proper ID, even though they're fellow Americans who are eligible to vote and eligible to, you know, get their voice heard. Then pair that with the widespread attempt to just completely undermine our election system by saying fraud exists where it doesn't, that fraud exists on extremely wide scales, that fraud exists in many, many states, and make not only Americans skeptical about the voting system, but also put on display to the world, hey, there's unrest in America. They're going the other way. They're going the other way. Their democracy is under attack, and that means that means something to our allies, and it means something to our adversaries. I think you can assume what it would mean to both of those. So, so all that together, we have an undermining of our elections with stricter voting laws being passed when they don't need to be, with specific demographics being targeted by one party, the Republican Party, in an attempt to restrict groups of voters. It's dangerous. It is, as President Biden said, you know, it, it's, it's un-American. It, it flies in the face of everything our democracy is supposed to stand for. And I want to call out the Republican Party here, because here, here's the facts. Republicans do not currently support policies that are popular with the majority of Americans. And the way American politics are supposed to work is that we should be electing candidates to office that support our views. Our views. And if the majority views are out of step with an entire party, then logically that party should be losing seats wholesale. But they're not. And in fact, they're able to kind of rule in the minority. This is not how our democracy is supposed to work. You are supposed to change your views. You are supposed to update your agenda to reflect the modern day issues. You are not supposed to Hold us to your will. You were supposed to exercise the will of the people. And that's not happening. And they are so scared. They are so insistent on sticking to their agenda, even though the only way to keep their agenda active is to disenfranchise large swaths of voters through active targeting of people who vote for the Democrats most of the time. It's un-American, it's deceitful, it's wrong, and it's putting our country in jeopardy. It's not only putting our democracy in jeopardy, it's making us look weak to our, to our adversaries. It, it, it allows you know places like Russia to run these information campaigns effectively, because when you have one of two parties consistently undermining our processes to a group of voters, roughly 25 to 30% of Americans, who are willing to you know, go hook, line, and sinker in for everything that they say, 
Those same people are the ones who are going to believe the Russian misinformation ads. They're going to be affected by outside, you know, messaging. They're essentially becoming weapons for adversaries. It's a dangerous game. The Republican Party is putting the power of their party, both financially and legislatively, before the needs and safety of all American people, all of us, rather than update their agenda and say, you know what, LGBTQ, you know, fully behind you, fully behind you. Hey, healthcare, yeah, everyone should have healthcare. Yep, simple, simple, right? They don't. They stay staunchly in the 1600s because they're certainly not to the level of progress our founding fathers were at. So, you know, minus, you know, slavery and some other atrocities, obviously. I'm just trying to make a general point here. The Democrats aren't doing this. The Democrats aren't saying, hey, we're going to target all Southern voters in a way to try to keep them from the polls. That's not happening. If it's one-sided, if there aren't facts to support it, if what they're doing seems completely unnecessary, and if they have to go out of their way to avoid actual issues in order to win office, there's probably something fishy going on, right? And anyone with with any level of kind of intuition should pick up on that. Not not to be offensive to anybody, but take yourself out of your your ideology for a minute and just look at the facts, okay? As a Democrat, I can safely say, safely say that the party that I support, that the Democratic Party is not participating in any type of widespread voter suppression effort. Not happening at all. Zero. I I'm not feeling guilty of my party making sure that other Americans who are eligible to vote can't vote. That's not something that weighs on my conscience. I don't need to worry about negatively affecting other Americans and their voice in our democracy. It's not something I need to worry about. I don't know that Republicans can say the same. However, I don't know that Republicans are willing to admit the same because they're going to assume that those laws only bar non-eligible voters, which I have shown Thoroughly is not the case. 10% of Wisconsin eligible voters were not able to vote in 2016 due to these ID requirements. These laws hurt 10% of all voters in Wisconsin alone. Come on. All right, so the For the People Act, there's a lot to like in there. There's a lot not to like in there. And I can do an episode on on just that. I can can fill an hour on just the, the For the People Act. Maybe you don't agree with everything, okay? But here's something I think everyone would agree on. All Americans who are eligible eligible to vote should be able to vote. Easily. Without hassle. They should be able to vote. It is our right to elect politicians to office. I think every single American will say, yep, if you're an American, you should be able to vote. Period. Bar none. No exceptions. And I think that's where we need to start this conversation every time. The question should not be, how do we make it so certain Americans can't vote or certain groups have to prove that they're American? It should be, how do we make sure every single American can exercise their right to vote every single cycle? We need to start from a different point. We need to change our attitude on this conversation. We should be looking to see how can we include 100% of Americans as to, hey, how many American voters are we willing to sacrifice their right in order to keep out a marginal, marginal percent of a percent of a percent of potential voter fraud. I don't think it's worth giving up 10% of all Wisconsin voters 
for what equates to one intentional instance in that state, maybe, of voter fraud. Okay? So that's voting rights. We, 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 we've covered a lot. We, we've covered Supreme Court rulings. We've covered history. We've covered essentially GOP strategy. We've covered demographics and why it's difficult. It's a big episode. I will probably listen to it multiple times because I want to make sure I covered everything. And I plan on doing a video on the voter ID portion on YouTube just to explain, because I feel like a lot of people get hung up there that it is not easy for a lot of people to get an ID. It's not an easy thing to do. And Americans need to understand that because too many people that it is easy for assume it's that way for everybody. And that's wrong. So that is the voting rights episode. Please let me know how you did. If you have questions, comments, concerns, please uh, go over to the New Deal community group. Just uh, sign up for membership there. I'll approve you. Come in, post your questions. I'll answer. We'll have a discussion over there. Follow the Facebook page. Uh, go to YouTube. Make sure you subscribe there. Check out the videos. Be on the lookout for that voter ID video. And of course, I'm going to be trying to do weekly or bi-weekly live feeds. So uh, check that out on Twitch, YouTube Live, and Facebook Live. Thank you so much for hanging with me. I know that I'm well over my hour here, uh, but that is my episode on voting rights. I really appreciate you guys listening. Have a wonderful rest of your morning slash afternoon slash evening, wherever you are. New Deal out.